Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain podcast, ASRA Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And then with me today is my co-host. This is one of our new co-hosts here, Sandy Christensen. She's the Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine and the Medical Director of Quality Improvement and Patient Safety and Comprehensive Pain Center at OHSU, Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon. Sandy, it's great to have you as a co-host. We're going to talk more uh, with Sandy here in just a little bit. And before we get started with our topic and before we get started with our uh, guest today, I want to remind you guys of a couple of announcements, real key important stuff coming up in the very near future. So we're recording this on February 26, 2019, and right around the corner on April 11th through the 13th is the Azra Spring Meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada at Caesars Palace. That meeting uh, is going to be fantastic. We have a lot of great programming coming uh, at that meeting. And um, I, I want to make sure that you guys have a chance to attend. So go to Azra.com and register for the meeting. Our registration this year has been through the roof. This is our record attendance so far in registration. Uh, second thing is the hotel registrations have been filling up faster than we expected. So we ran out of block rooms. If you were looking before and you missed a room, we've got more opportunity, more rooms coming up. And so uh, go back and check on the Azra.com website for the meeting page you might find an opening in those block rooms. We're keeping track of that, so hopefully we'll have everybody get a chance. That opportunity ends in a few weeks, so make sure that you go to the website and check that out. The other thing that we kept running out is about 18 of our workshops have already sold out. Um, we've never heard of this happening. This is way early for those workshops to sell out, but we want to give people the opportunity to attend some of their favorite workshops and some of the ones that are most important to them. So what we're doing is we've created duplicates of about five of the workshops to give, and then we've added space to some of the others. So if you went in trying to register for a workshop and it was full, go back in and look again. You might find a duplicate workshop that has the same material that you wanted to cover, and it's open now. So go back to the Azure.com website and check out all the workshops that we have available, all the PBLDs, and then, of course, all the wonderful speakers. I do want to mention one of our keynote speakers is going to be the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Jerome Adams. If you don't know, Dr. Adams is an anesthesiologist himself, and he has been actively pursuing the conversation about the opioid epidemic, how to prevent disasters from opioid overdoses, and then how to reduce the use of opioids throughout the country. I think he's going to be a fantastic speaker. We're so excited to have him at our meeting, and he's going to be on Thursday as the keynote speaker. Lastly, before we start talking about our topic today, is to talk about all the activity happening on social media. If you follow the hashtag AzraSpring19, A-S-R-A Spring19 on Twitter, you're going to see that the conversation has already begun. And you can be part of that conversation and participate in that dialogue uh, early and then learn who these people are that you can get to meet in person when you get to the meeting itself. So go on to Twitter, hashtag AzraSpring19. Okay, so let's get into our topic for today. Our topic today is simulation in ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia and pain medicine education. Now, this is a, a really interesting topic about how we uh, are going to utilize simulation in our education process. And we have three wonderful guests to join us on this topic. 
First is Jaime Ortiz. Jaime is an associate professor of anesthesiology, the director of regional anesthesia, and co-director of the acute pain management service at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. How are you, Jaime? Good. I'm glad to be here. and Thank you for organizing this uh, podcast today. Great. And second is we have Amanda Kumar. Amanda is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Duke University Medical Center in Durham. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And then our last uh, but not least guest is Hans Swigum. He's an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hans, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Raj. This is a great topic. I'm glad to be a part of it. Okay. Well, um, I want to introduce three articles that we have um, that Jaime has picked out for our conversation today. I'll just read you guys the titles, but we'll have the full references in the show notes so that you can um, uh, look, the article, look at the articles in detail. The first one is from Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain, uh, the Ultrasound-Guided Regional Anesthesia Simulation Training, a Systematic Review. The second one is from the World Journal of Emergency Medicine. This is Procedural Simulation, Medical Student Preference and Value of Three Task Trainers for Ultrasound-Guided Regional Anesthesia. And the third is from the Korean Journal of Anesthesiology, Simulation-Based Ultrasound-Guided Regional Anesthesia Curriculum for Anesthesiology Residents. So let me start the conversation. I'm gonna, Jaime, I'm going to start with you. Um, and I do want to mention this is an effort that comes out of the Education Special Interest Group of ASRA, which is obvious where this uh, conversation um, started from. But what, what is ASRA's conversation on uh, simulation and what its role should be in training our residents? I think the biggest thing we've noticed is that we're all doing a little bit of it at our, each of our programs along the way, but we don't really have a specific way to do it, a little curriculum or even a way to quantify uh, our success rate in teaching things using simulation, uh, getting appropriate feedback from our residents, and also potentially trying to see are we actually improving our trainees' uh, techniques down the road to potentially uh, improve clinical care. And so we've been talking about potentially getting a lot of us together from different uh, sites to potentially do some educational research on this topic because we think that's a lot out there that we can actually do on this. Uh, but it does require working together because it's very difficult to get enough trainees and do a research project in this way. Um, thank you, Jaime. Uh, Amanda, I'm going to direct the next question to you. What do you think are some of the shortcomings of um, learning on simulation versus actual patients? That's a great question. Um, you know, it depends on the mode of simulation that we use. And I think one of the things that we use a lot in simulation are partial task trainers. So whether it is a um, agar model, um, like the blue phantom, or if it's something that's more homemade, like a gelatin model, a piece of pork loin with different things inserted into it to simulate vessels and nerves. I think that the use of those sometimes can be difficult because one, it can't mimic the true anatomy of an actual patient. And then two, it can sometimes oversimplify the maneuvers that are needed to optimize needle probe manipulation and needle visibility is really great in these models. And so I think sometimes when our learners translate those skills into real life, they're surprised by the different tissues and 
how difficult, especially with deeper blocks, it can be to see the needle. Um, so while I think it's really helpful and it can um, help set up our trainees for success, it's certainly not a replacement for the real experience. Sure. Thank you so much. And then the counter um, side of that is what do you think the, the models are really good at? I think the models are really good at trying to give them an understanding of um, ultrasound and some of our scanning techniques and the key basics of needle visualization. What's really nice about the model situation is that it gives our learners um, basically an unlimited amount of time where there's no production pressure in a clinical setting. So they can do these passes and do multiple needle passes and multiple trials to really um, maximize their learning of very um, specific probe manipulations, how much pressure to put on, how much tilt to put on. And I think in a situation like that where there's not a lot of time pressure, it really optimizes their learning experience and allows us to give them a little bit more deliberate feedback prior to entering the clinical sphere. It's nice, too, because it's a low-stress environment, so medical students and kind of early-stage residents um, may not feel the pressure of actually harming a patient and kind of learn just the basics of it as well, which I think is always great. Completely right. agree. So, Hans, I, I find that um, when we've tried to use these uh, phantoms and different kind of simulation models, what we get is, um, as Amanda mentioned, something that really uh, speaks to the basics of ultrasound manipulation, needle manipulation, hand-eye coordination, and a little bit of, depending on what type of uh, uh, phantom you're using, maybe some ability to scan and, and identify structures. So is this really only useful for the very beginning ultrasound uh, physician, who maybe a medical student, maybe an intern, a junior resident, or do you find that there's any value to using simulation throughout someone's career to get better at these tasks? Where do you, where do you guys try to use this uh, in your practice? Well, Raj, I think that the neat thing about simulation is that you can pick and choose the different components of uh, regional anesthesia that you want to uh, learn or that you, where you want to enhance your skills. So although, although ultrasound, um, ultrasound guided uh, simulation is great for beginners and, and those early in their training, uh, I think there's also much that can be learned by advanced uh, residents and fellows and, and even staff, um, particularly uh, where it comes to uh, image acquisition and, and anatomic interpretation. So. Yeah, Amanda and, and others have been talking so far about, you know, developing hand-eye coordination and using phantom models to improve uh, needle target scanning and, and such forth. But where I find uh, uh, simulation useful for our more advanced residents or for our fellows is, uh, is actually in, in image acquisition. And in uh, some, we'll often use uh, ourselves as our, as our own high-fidelity models. Uh, because uh, anatomic variation can be very great. And some of the best learning that, that I've done with our fellows is, uh, you know, simply to hike up my uh, scrub bottoms uh, to expose my popliteal fossa and, and say, have at it. Uh, you know, show me, show me the popliteal fossa and the structures and, and what we can do to enhance our image. And so they can play around with tilt and angle and rotation and sliding and, 
and and see you know what actually optimizes our image and and such forth uh, in a way that they can't you know really do when they're performing a block on a patient uh, such forth and they can't really do that on a in a phantom model either and so I think there are the nice thing about simulation is that is that you can break it down to individual components and really study or really really work on you know an individual component of the of the greater picture of regional anesthesia and then by doing these multiple different components over time the goal obviously is that you can put it all together uh, when it comes to uh, taking care of our patients uh, when they come to uh, have have surgery so um that, that brings up an interesting question. Jaime, I'm going to um, throw this question to you. Um, so Hans mentioned just pulling up his pants legs and letting them scan on the uh, popliteal fossa. I think a lot of people think about simulation as being this, uh, you know, multi-million dollar suite with, um, you know, a bunch of gadgets and some cameras and somebody behind a booth running some, some scenario. Um, is that simulation or is there value in just doing like what Hans suggested, very, very basic bedside simulation, repeated uh, uh, task training without a real patient? Is that all simulation is? Where do you, where, what is the spectrum and, and where do we need to be targeting simulation? So I think that's interesting because simulation in general can be a whole sort of different things that you can learn from one experience. For example, I uh, thought the article by Dr. Kim and Dr. Sui was interesting because they spent quite a bit of time talking about this curriculum and on the, all the non-technical aspects of learning ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia. Uh, you know, our residents now are, are learning and getting tested in OSCEs to try to, uh, you know, specific patient clinical scenarios. So learning how to talk to a patient about potential, you know, risks, uh, getting consent, uh, placing monitors, all the other activities that are very important whenever you do nerve blocks, whenever you do an ultrasound-guided uh, anesthesia <clears throat> is very important. So using your own body to show images and then talking about the rest of the process can also be, you know, simulation. Uh, obviously, a lot of these devices and different things that we have available can cost quite a bit of money, uh, but you can actually simulate the clinical scenario with just some minimal equipment that you may just have available, uh, you know, bedside. Can I just follow up on that? Yeah, uh, go ahead. We we actually bring our residents over to our simulation center, and we have a we hire a standardized patient, and and part of our uh, training uh, and Jaime brought up the the Bansui uh, and Kim article uh, that mentioned you know uh, using uh, you know non technical components. We actually make our residents uh, go in and and talk to this uh, standardized patient about what the procedure is, what the nerve block entails, what the risks are, what the benefits are, and we have uh, then we have the the standardized patient has we've are, we've planted them with questions, and so they have you know three or four questions. Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? You know, what do you mean by this? And we we really make our residents you know thoroughly explain. You know what the block is, how they're going to perform it, what the risks are, what the benefits are, and then we actually make them actually open up a kit. And because uh, you'd be surprised, uh, the number of our and now we're talking about our our early residents, but you know the the number of residents that you know fumble through opening a kit and 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 how to 
what what do I put here? Where do I drop my medications? What syringes do I use? And so we do all that over at the simulation center before they go over to do their their first regional or, or obstetric uh, uh, regional rotation. And they find that very beneficial to do those non-technical uh, simulated exercises uh, in addition to the uh, hand-eye coordination and, and scanning uh, uh, exercises as well. That's great. I mean, I want to share a personal story as well. So I am a young attending. I've been practicing for about three years and do um, all different kinds of procedures, including spinal cord stimulators. But one of the things that I haven't done yet is a peripheral nerve stimulator. And it's not something that I was overly exposed to during my fellowship either. And so I had the opportunity just last week of basically working um, with the equipment for peripheral nerve stimulation on a gel model and then kind of with my fellows scanning the part of the body that we were planning on um, eventually placing the peripheral nerve stimulator in and kind of exploring, you know, what is this going to feel like? What kind of angles um, do we need to approach? You know, what are our landmarks? Um, how can we use this gel model to, you know, basically figure out where we're going to tunnel this and um, kind of had a later in life experience um, on simulation. So I don't think it's just for, you know, necessarily our trainees. I'm still learning and using these modalities. So I'm curious if any of you have had a similar experience where even out in practice, um, you've used these gel models to kind of learn a new technique or um, practice before the actual patient encounter comes. And I'll op open this up to anyone. I, I haven't had the opportunity to uh, to use it for a, a new technique like you're mentioning, uh, but maybe along a similar vein, what we have used the phantom models for is, uh, is for our f some of our fellows uh, come ingrained in kind of one way to do things. And for example, one of our fellows only holds the needle in their right hand, you know, no matter what. And it, uh, it was causing her ergonomics to be compensated because she was uh, constantly shifting her body and looked looking very uncomfortable and uh and not setting up very well and so you know we we decided that you know we we should maybe learn a little different technique and so went to the phantom model and and practiced you know using both hands with the needle both hands with the probe and and she never thought that she would be as good with her opposite hand and and actually after playing some some games and you know, looking at, at some, some scorecards of how she was doing, she was actually better using the needle in her non-dominant hand. And I, and I think that really gave her the confidence uh, to be able to uh, improve her ergonomics and her uh, positioning when it came to taking care of patients. And I, that all came about because of some simulation training and practice that we, that we did with her, uh, specifically looking at uh, a specific task. Thank you, Hans. It looks like, Amanda, you might have something to add to. Yeah, you know, I haven't had any personal experience with this thus far, but I think it's something that I'd be interested in the future and I think is going to grow, especially in the era of 3D printing. Um, there's a recent article in Rapham and it talked about a group that did a 3D printer to have patient-specific spine models. So not just a generic spine model to learn how to do thoracic epidurals, but ones that can mimic 
you know, loss of vertebral height and kyphosis um, to mimic a more difficult epidural placement. And I think that this advent of new technology and the avail- increasing availability of 3D printing models um, are go- is going to open up a lot of doors for us to be able to create specific models for specific blocks that are true to anatomy, both normal and abnormal. So I certainly look forward to using more of this in the near future. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, and that would be something that everyone would benefit from because we all have difficult um, cases and, you know, practice makes perfect. I, um, I, I've used these phantoms now later in my career in a different way, which is to test out new technologies. So as we get new equipment that purports to have this new feature or new functionality, we always use it on ourselves as a scanning tool. But if we need to do needle insertion, um, there's some uh, manufacturers that are providing various levels of uh, needle guidance, needle, new needle products that come out that are purported to be easier to visualize. So I think that um, we have to expand the use cases of what we define as simulation, as well as broaden the definition of what simulation means um, to include all of these different types of tasks that are going to come out throughout the career. I think that also justifies an investment in effort and resources behind simulation training uh, for an institution that may be a little reluctant to seeing it only as a beginner kind of tool. Uh, Amanda, I'm going to throw one other question back to you um, uh, before we move on from this. Is So it, of all the different available phantoms out there, do you guys, um, as you're kind of talking about this sort of homegrown uh, phantom solution where you 3D print spines and all that kind of stuff, and you may not be doing that yet, do you guys build your own phantoms? Have you bought them? What where, where are you guys getting these phantoms and what do you find is the most effective? I know one of our articles talked about the blue phantom, and I don't mean to use a brand name, but the sort of agar gel uh, manufactured phantoms as being the highest fidelity image, but that actually people liked, once you considered the cost, the homemade um, uh, gelatin phantoms as a better uh, all-around solution. Have you guys figured out something at Duke that you guys prefer? So right now we're currently relying mostly on the agar gel models um, simply because they're really reusable. I think the downside of the homemade models, while they are much more cost effective, they just require a lot of time and advanced preparation, and they're also not very reusable. I think you can freeze and unfreeze them, but they at best last a couple of weeks. Um, so for that reason, just for kind of practical Um, immediate availability at a moment's notice. We usually use the agar gel phantom models um, currently. We do have a couple of sessions, though they're rare, where we will use cadavers for our fellows. Um, So when we have an opportunity where there might be some leftover cadavers from either medical student courses or orthopedic surgery workshops, we'll have our fellows come in and do some dissection but also do um, towards the beginning of their year, a little bit of needling and ultrasounding on a cadaver model as well. Um, but again, the big barrier there is availability and cost. And Jaime, I'll, I'll throw the same question to you um, down at Baylor. Have you guys figured out a simulation solution that um, works for you in your environment there? Uh, so no, so over the years, I've used different things. Actually, the first time I put a workshop together for a faculty, Probably seven or eight years ago, I, I, I first 
tried out the whole tofu thing and it actually worked out okay. But again, you can't reuse it, it sort of falls apart after you use it on one session. Uh, you could always years make ago, dinner afterwards, though. That's, that's okay. right. That's right. Yeah. So you definitely have <laughs> to make a new one every time and put wires and other things in it. But uh, uh, a few years ago, actually, uh, our that actually the Department of Surgery, uh, a new chairman that came in for that department, wanted to upgrade their equipment. And they were next to our uh, simulation lab. So we got a few extra bucks to buy a few things, a few toys. So uh, in addition to getting like a new TE simulator, we actually got some um, ultrasound guided models from one of the companies that makes them. Uh, so we do have them and I've used them on and off over the years with residents. It's sort of plus minus as far as how much you get from them, uh, as far as the imaging. Uh, but definitely, you know, you were mentioning using those uh, the agar models and the gel models. And sometimes it, the residents will tell you it doesn't feel the same, obviously, as when you go with the needle inside a patient. So at least these models were a little bit better as far as that feel. Uh, but the imaging obviously is a lot different uh, than obviously you get with a real patient. Uh, so that's what we have right now as far as uh, the models. I think in reality, what we do most of the time, like Hans said, uh, image ourselves, image each other when I give lectures to the residents and then kind of talk about, uh, you know, the techniques in that in that way. Hans, I'm going to direct this question to you. Do you uh, envision a future that will include complications of procedures as being part of the simulation? Uh, yes, I would have to think so. Uh, you know, we do, we're doing a little bit of that already. Uh, we, um, we have scenarios where uh, we treat local anesthetic systemic toxicity and, and um, we'll, we'll do a, a simulation uh, where we have a, a mannequin uh, who starts seizing and then uh, walk through the steps of you know, how we would treat local anesthetic systemic, local anesthetic systemic toxicity, excuse me. Uh, and so, so we are doing some of that where we look at what are the possible complications uh, from our, uh, our nerve blocks or our uh, neuraxial blocks and, and, and how, do we, how would we treat that. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult to make a realistic or high fidelity simulation when you start getting very complex uh, and when you start looking at, at side effects and and patient complications, uh, because you you introduce so many different variables of of what could happen, and if X happens, then Y happens, and when Y happens, then maybe Z happens, or maybe it doesn't happen. So when when you start talking about complications, it it really gets muddy very quickly, uh, and so those simulations tend to be more on the simple side and more on the uh, yeah, um, uh, you have to use a little bit of your imagination to to get through those scenarios. Uh, but I, I think our residents and, and fellows definitely have gotten use out of some of the things that we're we're doing as far as um, managing managing complications. I'm going to jump in here and put a little plug in. So at the spring meeting, we actually have a simulation workshop, and part of what they're going to be talking about is uh, complications related to regional anesthesia and actually running through simulation. For those of you who don't have access to a simulation center, this is a full high-fidelity simulation with a mannequin, audio, video cues, um, and, and moderators that are actually running the simulation. So I've done it before and helped instruct on that session, and it's a really engaging 
and if you are willing to uh, uh, accept the, the the fiction of it, you actually do get the emotional charge of feeling like you have to deal with an emergency situation. I think that this um, you know exposure to these rare clinical circumstances is definitely going to be the future of simulation when it's available. Um, I think it's so valuable, especially for some of our more senior trainees, either senior residents or fellows, to be exposed to the management of some of these rare clinical circumstances that they may otherwise never experience during their training. Um, I think in general in anesthesiology, we're lucky in that we were one of the first uh, medical specialties to really adopt and implement crisis resource management training and skills, um, which originally uh, came from the aviation field was known as crew or cockpit resource management. And it, I think it's been teaching our trainees how to plan ahead and mobilize resources, use cognitive aids if applicable, um, allocate their attention wisely. And I think those are really valuable skills in a safe environment where they're not actually dealing with a true life or death situation and they can make their mistakes in the simulator um, so that they can learn from those experiences moving on into their future career if heaven forbid they do run into one of these horrific um, rare clinical events. Well you know your buddy Anki Zudani from Duke is actually one of the instructors for that workshop. I know he is. Yeah. Amanda, do you have any specific scenarios that you found particularly helpful with the simulator? Yeah. So over the past two years or so, we've actually started to develop a new regional anesthesia simulation curriculum for our fellows specifically. And that curriculum ranges from medical knowledge aspects, including technical and non-technical skills, with a particular emphasis on some crisis resource management principles as well. Um, So, for example, one of them deals with a pneumothorax that occurs after having a paravertebral block and leads down the path of respiratory arrest and having them manage that patient and diagnose what's going on. Um, We have another one where it's someone who comes in through the emergency department who had an intrathecal pump uh, misfill and they basically need to come up with a differential and go through the steps of diagnosing and treating local anesthetic toxicity as well as opioid overdose. And then also we have a couple of simulated um, patient discussions. So a patient coming back in from clinic with a terrible peripheral nerve injury and having those difficult conversations with patients um, as well. I think that's fantastic. So let me, um, I'm going to wrap up with one question for each of you guys. I always like to think about future state when we're talking about something like this. So Jaime, I'll start with you and then I'll go through each of you and kind of answer this question is, um, you know, we've talked about what has been and what is. Where do you see simulation going in the future? And I'm going to kind of prime the question with a couple of things I've observed, which is some of these augmented reality and virtual reality technologies that are coming about. Um, One of the sessions we're going to have at the workshop is a high-fidelity simulator um, that they invented down in Florida uh, where you can actually try to, uh, they have a mannequin where you can actually insert a thoracic epidural needle or a pervertebral block, and on a computer screen, you can sort of get an internal image, a virtual internal image of what your needle is doing in real time relative to the fake skeleton that's inside this mannequin. And so you can create um, real-time virtual feedback with your needle movements and kind of learn what that hand-eye coordination does. 
Um, I've also seen a um, Da Vinci robot style simulator where we put our hands on these little finger loops like the surgeons do with their Da Vinci robot. And we have a virtual reality image of a nerve block with haptic feedback back to the fingers. I haven't seen it in production, but I saw it at a meeting years ago. Uh, Jaime, where do you see simulation going? Is it going to simple uh, gels and phantoms, or is there more advanced technology that you think is useful? No, I mean, I think those ideas and that, that advanced technology, I can definitely see that in the, in the not too distant future. Uh, obviously, you know, the main thing whenever these things get developed is the cost. So every program, if they want to delve into it and actually use it for regular teaching, could be additional costs. Uh, I think at least in the near term, a lot of these sort of better development of curriculum for simulation, especially in regional. I mean, obviously, we've done an anesthesia for teaching general anesthesia and uh, different types of cases that we sort of see over time, um, trauma. I know we've always taught malignant hyperthermia in our simulator and those kind of uh, crisis management things. So I think using it more for regional in general for not just residents rotating through their rotation, but during their entire residency. So that is something that they uh, uh, get better at throughout the process, not just during that one or two month rotation uh, would definitely be more useful, at least in my department. Uh, but I think uh, also eliciting feedback from the learners uh, regarding you know, the better, best ways for them to learn also. I think we need to do a lot more of that uh, in the future. And it may be that these games and this virtual reality is what they, what they really uh, could benefit the most from. But it may just be they just want you know better simulation scenarios like we've been talking about today, um, where they can just imagine a patient, talk about what they would do before, during, and after, and going through that exercise might actually be the most beneficial. Hans, where do you see something like that in the future? Do you see um, technologies being the the solution to the problem of simulation, or more of a hazard? Uh, you know, I think everything in moderation, Raj. So it's if it's hard for me to predict exactly what simulation will look like 10 years from now. I mean, if we think about it, ultrasound guided regional anesthesia has only been around for, you know, less than two decades and look at the explosion and, and all the different things we're doing right now. So, you know, to predict five to 10 years from now, what the, what's going to be it or what's going to be the, the next wave is, is kind of, I'm, I'm not that smart, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> But but if I, I so I what I have to say is that I think it, everything in moderation. I think there are going to be definite advances adva advances like you mentioned, uh, particularly uh, with the real time feedback. You were mentioning the thoracic epidural. You know, right now when we when we manipulate our needle that's inside a patient's body, we we all we only have our tactile feedback uh, to rely on, and so you know, so getting some sort of other visual feedback along with that. You know, will enhance, I think, our learning. So I definitely think that those things are going to be useful, and and we will see them in the next five to ten years. And and they will be like everything; they'll be expensive to start, and then they'll get cheaper, and and then you know they'll be uh, 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 very very useful at many different places. But I think there will always be uh, a place for what we're currently doing right now as as well, because uh, you know. We're still going to have to use our hand-eye coordination skills, uh, so we're, so the phantom models will still be useful. Uh, we're still going to need to be able to optimize our imaging with uh, pressure and angle and rotation and sliding. So, so just getting our hands on a probe and whether it be a friend or whether it be a, 
a high fidelity uh, a mannequin model, uh, you know, both of them are going to be able to help our learners uh, understand anatomy, understand uh, how to get a better image and, and where to place their needle and, and things like that. So I think, I think there, there's a role for everything, and we definitely will see some new things coming down the pike. So, Amanda, same, similar question to you, but I mean, you mentioned 3D printing of a spine. Imagine if you did a 3D digital reconstruct from a trauma CT of someone's spine and had a HoloLens with an augmented reality while you were in the epidural. I mean, is that a type of simulation? Is that where we should be working on technology? You know, I, I agree. I, it's hard to look into the future, but I think that the possibilities are really endless based on what we're able to 3D print and the new types of technologies that are coming out with, you know, people who are trying to make um, better ways to have ultrasound guidance for both thoracic and lumbar epidurals, whether it's using an external ultrasound or even an ultrasound that's embedded to into the needle tip itself. Um, I think that there's a lot of really great potential options out there, and I'm really excited to see what comes next. But um, like Hans, I'm, I, I really don't know how to predict the future there. Well, I think that um, just as a plug for you guys, so uh, all of you guys are involved in the education special interest group at Azra, and if you listeners out there are interested in these questions and interested in helping guide this community towards curriculum, technology, and methods for training our people better, both our trainees and the people already in practice, like us guys that have been doing this for a long time, we'll have to learn new techniques too. Um, that's a great conversation to be had. And uh, that education special interest group is a phenomenal group of people that I highly encourage you to get involved with. Um, one more time as we uh, wrap up here, I want to remind you about the spring meeting. Uh, it's coming around in uh, just a month and a half, April 11th through the 13th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Go to azra.com and check out all the details about the meeting and register for the meeting. Sign up for the workshops and the PBLDs and then follow us on social media up to the meeting, hashtag Azra Spring 19. And during the meeting, it's going to blow up. You're going to see so much activity on social media, pictures, on Instagram, things on Twitter, things, live streams on Facebook. So pay attention to all the details. It's going to be fun to watch this program uh, from a whole new set of directions. I want to thank all of you guys, Jaime, Hans, Amanda, for being our guest today. And of course, I want to thank Sandy for uh, hosting this uh, podcast with me. And we will talk to you guys next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Raj. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.